It's Christmas time, Reed. And you know what Christmas time means? It means Christmas specials on TV. It's always fun this time of year because you typically don't watch a Christmas movie in March. Elf is hard to beat. A Wonderful Life. Yeah, Miracle Thirty Four, Christmas Story. You know, some of, like those are all great and they're worth seeing. But by far, my favorite is Ernest Saves Christmas. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, healthcare systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information and have fun along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Reed Smith and Chris Boyer. Welcome to episode 98 of Touchpoint. I am Reed Smith, joined by Chris Boyer up in the Arctic North. (laughs) Happy holidays, Reed. How are you? Good. I'm just assuming it's the Arctic North. You're north of me. You have snow, right? We still have snow. Yeah, today it got up to 40 degrees, so it was melting. It was nice. You didn't have to wear your heavy jacket, but just a little bit lighter jacket. Ah, your heavy jacket. I don't have one of those. I have a jacket. (laughs) Maybe a pullover or a sweater but a jacket. (laughs) I mean, what can you say? You live in Austin, so. Yeah. Well, we are nearing the end of the year, and we're rounding things out. We we do want to make one more plug for our survey. Yeah, year-end poll of your favorite shows, your favorite guests. Because, you know, every year, Reed, we um, are making it a tradition where we're going to be doing a best of look back at the year show. And that's coming up. Our first annual uh, last year. Um, about this time, obviously. And so this will be the best of 2018. We would encourage you to go out, check that out. We'll have links in the show notes. And then certainly if you follow us on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, those types of places, we'll continue to post that link. Uh, It's like three or four questions. It's it's not Mm -hmm. much. It won't take you, but just a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we'd love to love to get your feedback there. Touchpoint.health is the website. Rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. That is the number one way that other folks out there find out about the show. And so we appreciate the support. Pete, speaking of support, one of our sponsors, our very first sponsor, Loyal. That's right, Reed. Loyal is certainly a, a great sponsor of ours. And let's face it, healthcare is complicated, but our friends at Loyal kind of get that. That's why they are dedicated to helping health systems simplify the complexities through smart consumer-first technology solutions designed to inspire loyalty, hence their name. Whatever your business goals are, Loyal's platform enables you to empower, guide, and connect with your data in order to deliver a simple, smarter, digital patient experience. And if you want to learn more about Loyal and all the different products that they have to help you, you can schedule a personal demo out on their website, loyalhealth.com slash demo. And when you do that, be sure to let them know that Touchpoint sent you their way. You know, as we're kind of wrapping up the year, this is our last, I guess, traditional episode of the year. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Next week, episode 99 will be a really cool show, something a little bit different where we're going to pull some clips and actually point to a few of the other shows on the network. So if you haven't listened to some of those other shows, that's a great kind of sampler platter. But anyway, that's episode 99. This is 98. We're talking about, we, we, we've talked historically about you know your digital footprint, not only SEO, SEM, and those types of things, but we've talked about directory management. We've talked about, I guess, a way to understand how people find you. The digital front door has been a topic historically, mm-hmm. things like that. But this is you know kind of that thought of digital marketers. You know, are we really becoming data scientists? Are we data scientists? Should we be data scientists? You know, kind of what that means or looks like. Digital and data, or data, as you say, uh, go hand in hand. I kind of think of it as like all the digital tools and platforms are sort of the plumbing of your digital footprint and the data that is the water that runs through the pipes of those digital platforms. And so those things go kind of hand in hand. We'll have a more formal definition in just a second. But when we think about it, it's like your digital footprint, your data footprint, those things are becoming critically important to all marketers. So it's fair to say that is digital marketing or even marketing in general just becoming really a, a play around data? And, and I'm so happy that we're we're talking about that now, Reed, because since we first started in this space, 
measurement and, and data wasn't really a part of what we were doing. Not, not initially. I mean, I think through no fault of anyone necessarily. I mean, it's just, it's new. And so it takes a little bit of time to kind of sort that out. And quite honestly, for, for the, the accountability to be there. And so some of it, again, not bad because I'm this way. Like I can't, I can't just go read somebody's assessment of something and go, oh, okay. Like I, mm-hmm. I have to use it, you know, kind of mess around, figure out how it may work for me, you know, those types of things for me to really understand is Vine worth messing with, right? <laughs> or or Periscope or Meerkat or whatever, mm-hmm. right? You know, I just named a couple of things that don't even exist anymore, probably. But but the point is, is like, you know, should you should you sign up for that? Should you have, you know, is it shiny object syndrome? Well, it's a fine line between shiny object syndrome and I need to figure out how this works to determine how we may or may not decide to use it. Because people are out in the space, they are leaving, you know, what we've talked about historically, which is that digital footprint. So they're they're on social media. People are posting. And I don't think they really understand of really what that means long term. Well, why don't we take a second? I, I gave a rough metaphor, I guess, for what a di- digital footprint is and versus a data footprint. But let's turn to Wikipedia again for uh, a definitive definition of what those two terms are. So Wikipedia defines a digital footprint, or they even call it a digital shadow. Whoa. Yeah, I know. <laughs> As a person's or company's unique set of traceable digital activities, actions, contributions, and communications that are manifested on the internet or on digital devices. So if you think about it, that's your social accounts, your email accounts, the things that you do, like when you have a target account and you're logging into their app, all of the things that you were just mentioning, that's your digital footprint. On the other hand, there's your data footprint. Your data footprint can include some or all of the actions that are left on the web and on devices in one's digital footprint, but it also includes all that internal data from other systems, uh, such as like what your purchasing patterns are, what you've purchased before. Some of your data footprint includes the amount that you're purchasing, your, your, you know, how much money you're spending. Uh, it could be uh, things that companies are capturing about you based on your preferences, based on how they're interacting with you. That's your data footprint. So some of that stuff is not something that you necessarily control, but businesses are controlling and measuring and keeping an eye on. Let me, let me see if I'm thinking about this the right way. So, so the digital footprint is activity-based, and it even says in their activities and actions uh, and contributions and, and those types of things. So it's things you've gone and done, places you've been. So it could be websites you visited. It could be physical locations or even storefronts that you've visited. But because you're using apps, you know, that that's potentially trackable. It's your activity, you know, and, and kind of the way you you navigate this digital world, if you will. The, the the data footprint is almost like kind of what you left behind or what you did while you were there. It's almost kind of hard to delineate the two. Well, they're definitely tied together. Yeah. It's, it's almost like what you did versus what the person or the brand or whoever on the other side of the equation was able to learn about you, so to speak, or kind of gain from you interacting with them. And the reason why it's important for us to know the difference between those two, and I like the way you drew that parallel read, is because we've been hearing a lot in the news about breaches. I don't think anyone was really surprised that, you know, if you're on Facebook, Facebook knows what you like and it knows what you're commenting about. And, you know, that's the data that they have. But the thing is, is that all of these different companies now are becoming basically data brokers. They're selling your data, identified or de-identified, in a way that advertisers and marketers that are not within that company can benefit from it. Yeah, because it's funny, because if you look at some of these platforms, probably not Facebook as much anymore, as much as we've talked about the advertising component of Facebook, although this is still a big piece. But a lot of these places, you look at it and you're like, how are they making money? what's, What's the play here? You know, Twitter's a good example. Facebook is a good example. Any free app that you download that's like, you know, download the Target app, download the Delta app or whatever it is. Yes, they're free. And some of it is a customer service play or an experience play. And I don't want to downplay that portion of the equation either. But the idea is to, to gain data and understanding. 
uh, you know, there's articles that come out and stories that come out all the time, and we've been hearing it more and more frequently lately about these companies that either willingly sell your data to other companies, or maybe they have a data breach and they're losing that data, and that's becoming a serious concern. So I think it was earlier this week, Reed, I sent you a link to the New York Times Daily podcast about mobile phones and about all of those apps and all the things that you do on your mobile phone, that's actually um, creating a master data footprint that not only tracks all your actions through the devices itself, but it actually tracks your physical location. Yeah, that's a crazy thing, right? I mean, I think I think to some respect, people understand that their physical location is being tracked, right? I mean, or you've seen some stories and you get the like, go into your phone and turn off these location based settings and you know that that type of thing. So people people understand that, like, okay, whether I'm taking a picture or I'm using you know some sort of an app, like, you know, app on my phone, there's some tracking going on. I just don't think, and, and I mean, you and I deal with this stuff on a daily basis, and I don't think I quite understood to the granularity until I listened to that podcast and heard them say that, you know, they looked at one person and over the course of an hour, their location was indexed like 14,000 times. In an hour? In one hour. That's crazy. Like, uh, what now? <laughs> you know, and so they started they started backing into like this person works in a nuclear plant and this is where they live. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah, so now we're getting into like national security <laughs> issues and stuff like that. But are you surprised? I mean, so that article, and we'll link to it, it's certainly an eye-opening article. That data that that these apps are accessing is being brokered to other advertisers and it's being openly sold, not on a black market, but like actual these are these are businesses that are selling this data to advertisers so they can actually benefit, learn from their audiences, and be able to, you know, insert advertisement and, and marketing into their day-to-day lives. Yeah, there's a trade-off, right, with this idea of convenience and customer service and things like that. So you're walking down the street and you walk past the pizza place and you get the notification on your phone or, or something like that that, oh, two-for-one special on you know slices of pizza or something. And so you think like, oh, well, that's cool. Well, how do you think they do that? <laughs> exactly. There's a trade-off there. You're giving up a certain level of privacy Based on convenience, you know, what are we okay with? And the problem is that's probably a varying scale for a lot of folks. I personally am probably a little more apt to give up some of that just because, again, what we do, I'm already kind of all over the internet, so to speak. And so it'd be hard for me to be uh, anonymous (laughs) or or whatever. But, But if I start thinking about my kids, you know, I'm like, if it's already like this now, What's it going to be? You know, my, my son, my oldest is is eleven. You know, so think about once he becomes an adult at eighteen, so seven years. What what's going to be happening then? And that's willingly sharing data. And then we hear all these stories. It's like every day you can hear a story about how we're uncovering more and more about how Facebook has either had there was that that hack that made six point eight million people's private photos exposed. That was unwillingly, or it's kind of hard to tell with Facebook because they're so secretive about what they do. Some of it they're actually selling for profit, and others they're saying, oh, that was an accidental thing. You know, and all the while off the other side of their mouth, they're saying, we're really concerned about your security and your privacy. Facebook, the largest social network that's out there in history, obviously is a big data company and is making money off of your data, willingly or unwillingly to wanted advertisers and to unwanted advertisers. Two things there in my mind. One is if you've posted a picture, uh, we'll, we'll go with picture, but really anything. If you've posted a picture or, or other piece of data to a social media site and you think that there's some level of privacy there, that's on you. The only way that that picture remains private is you don't share it. Like you can't upload it to some site and assume that there's going to be any level of privacy there. It goes all over the internet, even if it's just, you know, amongst different servers. There's also this idea that I guess on the flip side, that anybody really cares. (laughs) 
is this just an expectation? It's not like this is going to get fixed. I hate to break that to everybody. So it's not like we're going to look back in 10 years and go, man, remember that, you know, back in the late teens, like 2015 to 2019, when we had all those data breaches, they're not going to stop. And we're going to look back on this time in, in history as when data breaches happened. We're going to continue to share information in this open cloud network that's out there. And we're doing it for convenience sake. We're doing it because we want to connect. We're doing it because that's part of our lives now. And even if we take a photo and we don't share it, don't think that your phone manufacturer is not keeping track of that that data too. They are. They're using that data. They may not sell it if you're Apple, at least right now Apple says they don't sell it. You know, maybe they will in the future. If there's money to be made, I'm sure there will be if there's benefits to be made. Hey, we want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors, and that's our good friends at Binary Fountain. You know, as a healthcare marketer, it's probably pretty obvious these days how much time you're spending uh, on reviews, ratings relative to hospitals, physicians, all that kind of good stuff. You know, too many of those are going unanswered and they're certainly not being analyzed. This could be costing us new and current customers. It could be impacting our patient experience scores and potentially impacting our revenue. Luckily, our good friends at Binary Fountain have an online reputation management platform called Binary Health Analytics. If you'd like to learn more or even schedule a demo, visit them online at binaryfountain.com. That's binaryfountain.com. You know, and, and you think about things like Google Plus, we know it was dying a slow death. You know what killed it, right? Was a data breach. That's what made Google officially say, well, Google Plus is no longer a thing. I thought it was just because they're not good at social networking. Well, that too, but <laughs> but Google is susceptible, and your your Gmail account. I mean, I, I shudder to think how many times third party people may have access to some of the emails information that we're sharing with one another. But that's definitely a way they're making money. At least they're making it indirectly by learning more about you, so that we can so they can sell advertisement to you. It, this comes down to a very simple equation that is actually harder to execute, but it's, it's, it's pretty simple. It's how much privacy do you want relative to convenience? So if you want to do these things, if you want to use this cool new app or this app makes your life easier. I mean, like I use an app that makes it super easy for me to track my mileage driving in the car and it tracks each drive that I do. And you can quickly make this a, you know, oh, that was personal or that was business. And at the end of the month, you can export your business ones into a spreadsheet and turn it in for your expense report. It makes it super simple to keep up with your mileage. Well, that's really convenient. Well, by the nature of the app, it's tracking everywhere I go. It knows everything about you. I don't know if it's as simple as an equation as you put it out to be. I mean, the concept of it is simple, but how do we know where our data and our digital footprint ends? And how much threshold we can put on it. We we talk a lot about GDPR. That's kind of making transparency around how businesses are accessing your data and using your data. But honestly, do you really think that we as consumers will know deep down, like we'll understand what type of data is being accessed by us? They may say, look, we're never going to sell your email to anybody. We're never going to let them know who you are, de-identify you, so to speak. But that doesn't mean they don't track you. They still do. And maybe they're selling that de-identified data. If your number one priority is privacy, then you should not have accounts on these networks and you shouldn't download apps and those types of things. Maybe you say, well, wait a minute. Well, how else am I supposed to do X, Y, or Z or keep up with this person or do this thing or whatever? And it's like, well, that's convenience. So we've been talking a lot about it from the user's perspective. Now let's put on the hats that we usually wear during the day, Reed, which is as marketers, right? As healthcare Mm -hmm. marketers. Mm -hmm. All this access to data, all this information is extremely helpful for us. In fact, I am delighted that there's so much data that's out there because it gives us an opportunity to really understand our users better. Isn't that a good thing? Well, it's great, yeah, as a marketer. <laughs> I, want, I want you to tell me all these things because then I can put things that are more relevant in front of you at any given time. And again, as a user, maybe that's good. Maybe you're like, oh, this is great. 
the content I get, the products that are put in front of me, whatever it is, are much more relevant to me and what I like and who I am and what I do and what I'm interested in. And as a marketing person, uh, yeah, that's great. I want to know what you're interested in and all those things. And so I guess, though, you know, what does that mean for the responsibility that we have as marketers? We have to be extremely careful when we're collecting that data and keeping it to use it for that intelligence purposes. And moreover, we have to be very cautious about how we communicate with people so we don't um, make them feel you know, creeped out by the fact that we have this data and we know so much about them. We talk about like personalization on a website. I'm sure there are web their web personalization platforms that can know a tremendous amount of information about you just by tracking your IP address and synthesizing that data when you land on their website. Is that the kind of expectation that our users want to have? Probably not, but we certainly want to give them the right information, at least more convenient information so that we can make it easier for them when they're looking at our website. And that's just one use case. When you start talking about things like, Hey, so you know your Amazon or Google device is always listening. Everybody's like, wait a minute, what now? And so it's like you know you're having conversations just in the course of daily life and not thinking about that little hockey puck thing that's sitting over there on the counter. And then also the next time you get on Facebook, it's like here's all this stuff relative to what you were talking about earlier. And so I think that's where this responsibility comes in is it's like, look, if I knew other people had the same morals, values and ethics that either I do or I strive to have or, you know, my grandfather has or, you know, whoever I kind of hold out as like, this is the most ethical person I know. Like if I thought that's who was in charge of these companies, that would be one thing, but I don't know who's in charge. I don't know what they're doing. Uh, you start looking at like the Edward Snowdens of the world and some of those types of things. And you're like, no, wait a minute. What, what do I not know here? And that's where you start getting all conspiracy theorist. Is that a word? Theorist? Anyway. Um, and, and so that that's the problem. And I think that's what we're fighting as marketers a little bit. We're not responsible enough to have this data. That's, that's a very interesting uh, dilemma that we as hospital marketers face. I'd like to share with you, Reed, a use case. And I, I just want to get your initial reaction to this. Okay, I'm going to provide a use case of uh, a hospital campaign or a campaign that we recently put together at our health system. And I just want to get your senses if we've crossed that creepiness threshold, so to speak. Okay. okay. With our health system, we have pharmacy services. Well, one of the things that we know is our pharmacy services competing against like a CVS or uh, or Walgreens, you know, some of those big box for-profit pharmacies. Sure. Because sure. those are, you know, they're everywhere, whatever. But our pharmacies are are very close to where our clinics are. And we want to try to get in top of mind with the people that are using our services to see if we can actually share with them that we have a good pharmacy that is comparable. What we first did is we used geofencing. You know what geofencing is, Mm -hmm. right? Where you Mm -hmm. can actually, using digital tools, paint a map that you only send an ad when you're in this physical location. We did a campaign where we geofenced our pharmacy ads to people that are in like a Walgreens or a CVS pharmacy. Is that creepy? I thought geofencing was when you built fences out of recycled geometros. <laughs> this is one of those things where you talk about geofencing and everybody's like, I wanna, you know, I wanna draw the border around my competitor and serve up ads to everybody that's sitting in the waiting room over at X, Y, or Z. No, but here's the problem. Here's the problem. I don't know if it's creepy or not. To me personally, no. No, I I don't have any problem with it. But this is where it's like everybody has a different opinion. Their level of I'm okay with it, the I'm okay with it scale is different for everybody. That's the hard part. And I don't know how to measure that. But we, you know, we were very careful to say that the message of these mobile ads basically said that, you know, a message of convenience and just to learn more if people are interested to learn more and to click yeah. on, click on the ad. So, I mean, we're trying to be very, you know, subtle with, with the fact that we are geotargeting advertisement to these people. The uh, use case hasn't ended yet, though, Reed. There's still a little bit more to this. When you clicked on the ad, you came to a landing page. And on that landing page, we used a technology that's called click to map which basically means, in a nutshell, that we dropped a little pixel on their mobile phone. And now we're able to track 
on a map, on a location, a geophysical map, we were able to track where they were going. Ah, uh, yes. And then you followed them there. <laughs> well, we didn't follow them there physically, but what we did is we actually said if they're using their cell phone and they have this pixel on their phone, if they go into our pharmacy, if they walk even near our pharmacy, with like within the parking lot of our pharmacies, we want to know that. We just want to get a ticker that says, hey, one person came to our pharmacy. Because what we're trying to determine is if it actually drove interest. Is that creepy? I mean, a little bit, maybe. Hey, here's the problem. It's like, you know, we as marketers want to determine, you know, effectiveness of efforts. So it's hard to do that without doing some of these things. So your car notifies you, right? When it's like time for an oil change, like you get the little message, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's like, ah, crap. Yeah. I've got to get in there and do that. And so you keep hitting. Okay. Well, about a week or two rolls by and you haven't gotten the oil change. And like every time you start your car, that little thing pops up on your dash. If you have a newer car. Well, what if like the car dealership reached out and was like, Hey, no, it's been two weeks. Like, can we go ahead and get you in? It's like, wait a minute. You knew this was up for two weeks? <laughs> Again, super convenient. Like, oh, yeah, holy cow, yeah, that would be nice. But to some people, they'd be like, oh, that's wonderful. I wish somebody would do that. And for some, it'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. They know? Like, they're tracking my car? As a marketer, then yes, that is nice to know. And if you're being responsible with the data and things like that, then that's fine. But you know, if you made that public that, hey, we're doing this, everybody's going to have an opinion on that. I would suspect that, yeah, that maybe that people would have maybe a visceral opinion about that or, or at least a visceral reaction to all of that because that feels like it's a little bit of a violation of trust. Even though in all reality, you, know, you ask a marketer and they're going to go, wait, what? No, we're just trying to determine if what we're doing is effective or not. What do you mean trust? So I have to put a little caveat on that particular use case that I was describing to you. We actually didn't go through with it because we thought it was a little too intrusive. Um, we thought it did cross a line. We, we would love to be able to track the effectiveness of our marketing to that level, but we didn't go down that path because it just seemed like, even though the technology is there, it just seemed a little bit too intrusive. And I think that as more and more consumers become aware of the fact that their digital and data footprints are being uh, monetized or being sold to marketers, that they're going to become very cognizant of that. I found an article, read that is a pretty good guide about controlling how much the internet knows about you. It's very high mm-hmm. level, but one, one interesting point that they brought up that I thought we could talk about is the fact that there's two different types of digital or data footprints. One is called active digital footprints. That's all the information that a user shares online purposefully with a website or a social media account or whatever. That's their active digital footprint. We, we would expect that all the pictures that we post on Facebook, all the comments that we post on Facebook, all the tweets that we make, you know, even if we make uh, comments on third-party websites, that those are what we call active digital footprints and that kind of data is fair play for marketers to to utilize. Mm-hmm. But then there's passive digital footprints. Those are those traces of data left online and collected without the user's explicit knowledge. For example, like mm-hmm. a person shopping online will inadvertently provide shopping preferences to you know that site or whatever it might be. Sure. Those passive digital footprints, I think we all kind of knew as users that, yeah, sure, we're not getting these things for free. There's some value here, but we never knew to the extent of what all those passive digital data is so valuable to marketers nowadays. I think my passive, my my wife and I's passive digital footprint on Netflix could get us arrested. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) I mean, because it's pretty much all drug slash murder slash serial killer (laughs) type documentaries and shows. Uh But um, anyway, no, that's interesting. I've never thought about the passive digital footprint because again, it comes back to convenience. Why do you shop on Amazon? It's easier than going to the store, right? It's a better experience. It's like, oh, there it is. It's cheaper. It'll be here in two days. And uh, I don't need to go look at it. Why in the world am I going to make the effort to go to this some big box store to look at something I already know I want? 
Uh, so unless I need it that day, which Amazon's already solving that scenario, why not just do that? Well, so you end up with yeah, you do end up with passive uh, digital footprints, and that's something I've never thought of or heard about. We do have an interesting interview coming up about how one health system is using people's intent from a search engine optimization or SEO mm-hmm. perspective. I encourage everybody to listen into that. That's coming up soon. But there's one last article, Reed, that I found on Forbes that I thought would be particularly relevant to uh, people like yourself that are parents. And it says that posting about your kids online could damage their futures. And they talk about the fact that there are parents, they're posting photographs of their kids, et cetera. What they're doing is they are potentially leaving passive or active digital footprints about their children well before the children actually consented to that. That's an interesting thought, because if you look at baby pictures of me, you're holding a photo album. But when my kids are my age that I am now, uh, you know, they were born in 07, 09, and then in 15. And so especially the one born in 15, there is no photo album. It's just like stuff we've randomly posted online, or at least we've taken with our phone and downloaded to a hard drive. We haven't posted every picture we've ever taken up, obviously. But it's just a different world as far as what that looks like. And I don't know that we've totally thought through what that means. I mean, I mentioned earlier that like all my kids have Twitter accounts. They also have web URLs. You know, we went out and bought their .com and their, you know, claimed their Twitter handles just because, you know, thought it was good personal brand protection, if you will, or, you know, they may want them eventually or whatever. It's not like they use them now. But what does that mean? Well, that means what you're doing is you're engaging in what they call sharenting. Sharenting. Here we go. Did a millennial make this up? <laughs> Sharenting is the phenomenon of parents putting information about their children online. And, and there's an, uh, a report that forecasts that by 2030, sharenting will account for two-thirds of all identity fraud and cost hundreds of millions of dollars each year. I guarantee it. How could it not? See, this is why I'm moving. I'm taking my family. We're moving to West Texas, and I'm going to start a lawn and landscape business. We're going. We're just going completely dark. <laughs> moving into a tiny home, the whole deal. Well, you're still going to probably post photos online nope. for your family members it. to nope. see. Completely well, it's too out. late. You've already did it. I'm pulling them all off. I'm, I'm erasing myself from the internet. That's a thing, right? Can you do that? <laughs> Yeah, you could, and you put a little post on Facebook that says you cannot use our data for any purpose. <laughs> Out to lunch, right? Yeah, well, yeah. You, you post the thing that says I do not give Facebook my permission. Yeah, exactly. That's true. That's a real thing. So what's interesting is is that this whole concept, which of course I understand the benefit of social media, and I post photos on Facebook to explicitly share with my mother because I want her to know about the things that I do. Yeah, convenience. Yeah, for convenience sake, I'm, I guess I'm doing it actively. But if you have your child involved, Reed, it's passive. Yeah, they didn't consent. And, and at the age of 18, you're going to have to sit down with them and say, look, we're going to go back over all these photos that I took of you and posted on social media. And uh, you're going to explicitly give me permission to keep them on social media or not. I've got two forms here. One is for the initial <laughs> posting and one is for your mother's retweet. And so if you'll come through an initial, there's only 2,360 of these. And uh, there's a different form for each one, but it'll, it'll go fast. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's not just, you know, uh, uh, sharing about your kids. It's about sharing about your family members and your friends. I mean, these are things that we as, as marketers have to be very cognizant of and we have to keep a close eye on but realize too that as consumers this is going to be the new name of the game and we're going to we need to as consumers be cognizant of the fact that this data that we're sharing could potentially let's say will probably be used by some kind of marketer somewhere and the fact that you were really into dabbing back in the day will never go away 
Hey, Chris, before we go too much further, jump into this next segment of the podcast, I did want to uh, mention and thank uh, one of our sponsors, Influence Health. Uh, you know, they've got a consumer experience platform that, that covers several things. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we've we've talked about content management systems on this podcast. Yeah, we did. What about CRMs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we covered CRMs for sure. And then obviously each and every week we talk about digital marketing. So digital marketing systems, uh, you know, in one way, shape or form have probably been covered, right? That's right. Digital marketing systems. And I would say that we even talk about it in a way of uh, that overall digital consumer experience. Well, there you go. I, you know, I would, I would recommend for anybody interested in one of those topics uh, or anything else, they've also got some complimentary solutions on their website. But, but head over to their website, take a look at what they've got and what they're offering relative to CMS, CRM, digital marketing systems, kind of how all that is woven together in what they call their consumer experience platform. Find your way over to influencehealth.com. All right, uh, I am here for the next uh, Ask the Expert portion of the podcast and have Matt Bailey from John Hopkins Medicine with me. Awesome to have Matt on the show. Matt, maybe for, uh, for those that are unfamiliar, uh, give just a little bit of background of, of who you are and how you got to doing what you're doing. Absolutely. So uh, I'm the in-house SEO for Johns Hopkins Medicine. I'm the senior search marketing specialist. And essentially what that means is I have my hands in anything and everything uh, involved with the search engine. So paid search, uh, organic search, local listings, um, the whole whole nine yards. And uh, so I've been doing digital marketing in itself for about nine years now. I started to focus on SEO and SEM uh, in the past seven and have been building the organic search strategy for Johns Hopkins Medicine for the past four years uh, and working to, to manage their paid search strategy as well for the last five. Very cool. Well, you, you spoke. We're here at the Healthcare Internet Conference, which for those who have been listening to the show have heard uh, a few interviews that we've done uh, from the conference. And this is always a great place to come and meet smart folks and hear about cool stuff. And so appreciate you spending a few minutes. And so you and I were talking a minute ago about just uh, user intent. So on the organic side. So I think people, at least to some extent, understand the advertising side of the equation pretty well. You spend money. You put stuff in front of people right. by spending money, whether that's on Facebook or Twitter, uh, PPC or AdWords or whatever, Display Network type stuff. But on the organic side of the equation, you know, what 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 are some of your thoughts around like, what people should be doing? You know, we talked a little bit about intent. Mm-hmm. I don't know that a lot of people think of it that way. So it kind of taught me through that process of what kind of how you spend your time. Yeah, yeah. So, um one of the bigger challenges that we've come across uh, and we've tackled recently is we have a ton of competing content across our site, um, primarily between condition content and service line content. And to get to the really to the bottom of that and how we want specific pages on our site to rank and what we want them to rank for, we really have to look at what is the true intent of the search and what is that individual actually looking for. So this could involve things like answering questions that the individual doesn't even know that they're that they need answers to so before they even get to that point where you know i'm trying to self-diagnose myself do i actually need treatment trying to answer the questions that aren't actually being asked um rank brain with google is really over the past couple years been developing that if you you'll see predictive searches that uh, come up within the search results that are if you type in one search query it'll say people will also search for three or four different different other options so okay uh, we start with something very broad, and we look at, okay, so here's a piece of uh, condition content. Um, this individual is looking for pancreatic cancer. We also want to try and put together symptoms of pancreatic cancer, treatments for pancreatic cancer, diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. Again, trying to answer those questions that haven't even been asked yet within that, within that piece of content. Um, and looking at what is the true, uh, again, intent of, of those searches, how can we differentiate that from service line content that might be looking for not just what treatments are available for pancreatic cancer, but now taking that next step of where can I seek treatment for pancreatic cancer? What are the best pancreatic cancer treatment facilities yeah, uh, next near step me? type things or yeah, the near me stuff, right? Exactly. And that content itself differentiates significantly between those 
two seemingly not so uh, different search queries, um, you may change a what to a to a where, right. uh, for example, in the question. But the actual intent of that search changes significantly, and the content that we have to deliver with that changes as well. So how how does that different than what we've historically thought of? Is you know I'm going to put together a list of keywords, you know, for my mm-hmm. Uh, metadata on the site or for, you know, SEO strategy type stuff. I need a list of keywords for this service line or this treatment or symptom or whatever it may be. Like, how how is this a different thought process than that? So search has gotten, especially with voice search, has gotten more and more into the longer tail, the longer search queries of actually asking a full question, not just a keyword. So Mm -hmm. a keyword could be, again, pancreatic cancer, but the actual question is, do I have pancreatic cancer? Um, where do I seek treatment for pancreatic cancer? Um, so looking at the keyword perspective, we have to actually look at the question itself and how do we address that question? How do we answer that um, beyond just adding keywords to a page, adding keywords to the title tags, meta descriptions? It's really how do we branch out that content to uh, answer the questions that are being asked, not just for um the ranking standpoint, but also with answer boxes and things like that that are posed in the search results as actual questions themselves. Interesting. Okay. And so how, how do you do I mean, like as far as I know people have used, uh, you know, Google Analytics obviously is, is very commonplace for most folks. Some people into webmaster tools and some of those types of things. And so what types of technology are you spending time with on a daily basis? Sure. So we use a, a tool called Conductor Searchlight, and it is a it's an SEO research tool. It's a content research tool uh, that allows us to go beyond what we can get from our Google Analytics or our Search Console, and look at what a specific page is ranking for, or on the discovery side, search for a broad topic area and look at search volume to see again those longer tail queries, those questions that are being asked what has the higher search volume, what are people actually searching for, what kind of questions are they asking, and what kind of answers uh, can we provide. Um, Beyond Conductor Searchlight, even just doing a simple uh, incognito search on Google. Uh, Mm. Even before we had, uh, you know, paid tools like Conductor Searchlight, we did simple research through, typing in the query yourself, looking at those predictive searches, looking at people also ask and then those other topic areas and you can branch off of that very quickly if you take um, one search query could lead you to lead you to five other possible related searches you take those five related searches search for those as well it could lead you to another five so those kind of compound on top okay. of each other um, and build off of almost building yourself a, a, a question map if you will or a, a map of um, Here's the central topic area, and here are all of the questions. Here are all the themes that are being addressed within the within the search results. That's cool. I like that. I like that idea. So, how how do you work uh, alongside, or maybe do you come in after the fact with like your content team and the people actually creating content? Is it something that? Yeah. And do you recommend that you guys are involved, or people doing what you do are involved up front? I mean, do you come along once it's conceptually, you know, built or? written or, or whatever I mean how do you participate in that process yeah that's a great question so it's honestly one of the bigger challenges that I face as an SEO is um, the mindset sometimes is we've written these five pieces of content all right you go SEO them so they can rank yeah. uh, which is the complete opposite of really in, in my mind what the process should be because what we try to do is empower our content team to write content that's going to rank and that's going to bring in traffic. Um, so doing that research on the front end to understand what are some topic areas, what are some key focus areas, what are the, again, what are the questions that are being asked that we can provide answers to so that our content team can then develop the content. They can go back to faculty, they can go back to their physicians and gotcha. say, based on this data, based on this search volume data, this is the type of content that we should be pumping out. So it, in, it influences or informs content planning. So, I mean, you guys are like way on the front end of it then through the research side of the equation of what people are asking or wanting to know based on intent and things like that. Then I guess on the back end of that, it makes it a little bit easier for you to then integrate that and have it perform, I guess. Right, right, exactly. And it makes the conversation so much easier talking with faculty as well that 
uh, we may have a physician that could come to us and say, hey, we need to develop content around this nuanced treatment or this condition or this topic area. And you know, with limited resources, especially even with us, with our content team, um, coming to the table with data really takes that, that it, it eliminates the conversation piece of it. It makes it more of, again, here are five topic areas. This is why we need to go after them. Here's the data that, that supports it. We just need your buy-in. We need you to go ahead. And it, it eliminates really any back and forth um, between the two. Yeah, no, that's great. So uh, for those that are listening, m- most folks that listen to this show are hospital marketing, communication folks. And uh, um, you know, if, if they're not thinking about uh, organic search, at least in this way, what, what's a good starting point or a jumping off point? You, you've mentioned some really great things, incognito searches and things mm-hmm. like that. But w- where should they start this journey yeah so um a general ranking strategy so we've developed a keyword ranking strategy or keyword map if you will um, for the different areas of our site and our different goals so understanding do we want to drive traffic to our condition content do we have condition content do we want to drive traffic to our service line pages do we want to then influence that for patient acquisition uh, really understanding, setting out clear goals to say, okay, this is more of a branding piece of content or a branding avenue. This is more of a patient acquisition avenue. Um, and then developing your keyword map or your keyword strategy around that, going after those clear goals. So if it's a patient acquisition piece, we want to go after things like what are the best treatment centers for X condition. Um, if it's more of a branding piece, it's more of a content-oriented, general information-oriented uh, strategy that is Here's the general condition, here are the symptoms, here's the diagnosis. Um, How can we get our brand name out in front of the most eyeballs that we possibly can? Then hopefully influence them to move through the funnel for that patient acquisition piece. So again, that keyword mapping side of it is so, so important. Um, It eliminates in a lot of ways back and forth with competing content. A lot of times we, for example, have condition content within our health library that also exists on our service line site. But if we set ourselves clear goals to say this piece of content should rank for these types of keywords or these type of searches or this section of the site should rank for these type of searches because we want to bring in uh, prospective patients for uh, to schedule appointments versus we want to bring in individuals that may be searching for just general health content, general information. Very cool. And that's just a wealth of information. I mean, like you can almost go deep on all those things individually. Right. Uh, but I think that's a great starting place is just assessing where you are, uh, trying to put that plan in place and then we're and then trying to figure out, well, okay, well, how do we execute this? Do we, do we need a third party tool? There's things we can do like the incognito searches, like you mentioned, uh, to kind of get us started. And I think maybe even getting that incremental buy-in from folks, uh, will help. So that's, that's awesome. And I appreciate you spending a few minutes with us for, for folks that maybe have, um, you know, nerdier questions or want to go a little bit mm-hmm. deeper, connect with you online, what's the best way they can do that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, email would be best. Uh, so my email is matt.bailey, B-A-I-L-E-Y, at jhmi.edu. Awesome. Um, that's really the best way to get in contact with me. Cool, cool. And we'll have that in the show notes. And uh, certainly appreciate you spending a few minutes uh, before you uh, depart from, uh, from lovely Scottsdale. So <laughs> thanks, man. Appreciate Great. it. Absolutely. All right. Well, special thanks again to Matt Bailey for sharing some of his interesting uh, techniques on how he's using, how people are searching to understand their intent. And again, using data for the right reasons, not using it in kind of a creepy way, but really using it as a way to help make what he's doing with his digital presence a little bit more effective for the users. So we thank him for all the information he shared. Yeah, I mean, you know, making your website more effective and making sure people get the information they're looking for. So I, mean, I think to your point, what he's doing is uh, is is really cool. And so I think that's another great example. That interview I did uh, when we were at the uh, Healthcare Internet Conference out in Scottsdale a couple of months ago. And uh, so another good example of why that conference and the other ones we go to are so important because you get to meet really cool folks like that and talk to them and and go, wow, okay, so why are y'all doing that? How are you doing that? And so anyway, that's just a great example of that. Would encourage you to check out those, uh, those conferences that we've mentioned and 
and that broadcasted from. The other thing that we'd recommend is keeping us on your uh, podcast listening feed over the next couple of weeks. As we mentioned, uh, the next episode that we're going to be doing is sort of like a, a clip show of some of the best Touchpoint podcast networks. We realized that you know, we've been talking about the, the the other podcasts that we're doing on the Touchpoint Media Network. Some of the content that we're putting out there is pretty interesting. And so next week, we're going to kind of highlight some of the best clips from uh, the shows. So you all get a taste of that. That's right. Talked about convenience. Here it is. So we're going to uh, we're going to serve you up some of the best ofs. <laughs> But we'd love to have you stick around for that. That's episode 99. And again, episode 100, which we'd love for your uh, input on. We'll be the first one of the new year. So look for those links out in our social feeds. Uh, Before we get out of here today, maybe a couple of recommendations. What do you got? Well, Reed, in the spirit of the holiday season, I am going to recommend what I consider to be one of the best Christmas holiday specials that they air on TV every year. And that is How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Now, I want to be very clear here. I'm not talking about the Jim Carrey live action movie. I'm not talking about (laughs) the animated full-length feature film that's in theaters right now, which is in the Christmas season of 2018. I am talking about the original animated short drawn by Chuck Jones way back when that airs on TV every year has the great songs in it. One of my most favorite songs, your mean one, Mr. Grinch. I just cannot help, but just sing along to that song. Every time I hear it, that is probably every time that comes on, I just need to watch it. I just stop everything I'm doing and I watch it to the end. Cause I think that's one of the best shows that are out there. So how the Grinch stole Christmas. That's my recommendation. There you go. Well, you know what? I'm going to change my midstream here and um, I'll, I'll kind of give my, my recommendation relative to uh, my favorite one to watch during the holidays. Uh, Die Hard is the best Christmas movie. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> although that did come out, right? That did come out at Christmas. It is a Christmas movie. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, well, I mean, good. Yes, good. And and the aforementioned uh, Ernest Saves Christmas is 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 the best. But as far as animation goes, it's hard to beat the Charlie Brown shows. Whether you're talking about Thanksgiving, really Thanksgiving and Christmas. When we start tacking on Valentine's and some of those, I feel like we're just we're just opportunist at that point. But I think the uh, I think the Charlie Brown Christmas. Christmas special is awfully hard to beat and just it's just fun because you've watched it so many years in a row like a lot of the other ones we've talked about it's uh, nostalgic in some way and anyway a lot of fun to watch so there you go well that I have to agree with you that is that is my second most favorite Christmas show but I do have to say Reed you missed my 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 second favorite Charlie Brown animated special which is Charlie Brown Halloween Oh yeah, the Great Pumpkin. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a good one. That's for another recommendation on another podcast. Yeah, next October. All right. <laughs> well, uh, thanks for listening again. Touchpoint.health is the website. We we would encourage you to not only check out next week's show if you'd like to hear some uh, clips of the shows, but surf over there and you can check out all the shows on the network and uh, rate, review, subscribe wherever you listen is certainly appreciated. So for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we will see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.